We're very glad that you're here. If you're joining us virtually, glad to have you part of what we're doing this morning as well. I'm excited to jump back into our Genesis study with you. And so we're going back into E2E, eternity to eternity. This morning, if you have a Bible with you, maybe have it electronically or hard copy, go to Genesis chapter 4, and we'll be getting to that in just a minute. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you'll see the verses up on the screen, and, and that will help you as well. A um, couple details I want to pull to your attention. This morning, when you go out of the uh, auditorium into the atrium, these books, uh, E2E, this is book part two. We finished book one about five or six weeks ago. And then we stopped for Easter, and this is book two, and they're free. They're on the tables out there. And this will be kind of a study guide for you as you're working through this. And maybe you're in a small group. There's questions in here that you can use for that, as well as there's study notes on the other side of that pillar in the atrium. You typically grab those when you come in the auditorium, and if you didn't get some, feel free to get up and get them during the service, uh, especially some of the questions that are in there related to small groups. So pick up that book for sure today when you leave. And then uh, detail, ladies, for you. If you didn't get in here um, at the beginning of the service when Kristen was doing announcements, uh, there's a detail related to this coming Saturday, and there's a simulcast for women. Lori tells me there's about 100 ladies already signed up for this. And yet there's a table, this is the last Sunday, ladies, that you can sign up for, the simulcast coming next Saturday. And there's six teachers, really good quality teachers, there's worship that's involved, and there's lunch. Lunch is always a good thing, and it's from Travers Pie Company, and so that's, that alone is probably worth the money. But the cost is $20 uh, to come to the event, and if that's an obstacle for you, there are scholarships available. So we don't want you to miss that. Now, my wife sent me a text to make sure I didn't miss any of the details. So just give, give me a second. Okay, cost is $20. It's a wonderful mini retreat. Okay, anything else you want to add to that, Lurley? See, she's right there, but I have a text from her right here. I should have her come do this. Okay, all right. Um, one more detail before we get into uh, uh, prayer time. Um, Thank you for helping if you parked last week. You know, obviously, a week ago today was Easter Sunday, and there were, um, over the course of the weekend, there was 2,500 people in the building. Just phenomenal, right? Um, yeah. Um, obviously, our parking lot can't handle 2,500, and so um, many of you helped by parking down at the bowling alley, and we had, at one point, 68 cars parked down there. And that was a huge help. So if you come to the 11 o'clock service on a regular basis, a lot of the staff parked down there, feel free to continue to park down there, and, and that would be a help. We are working on the parking situation. We're in discussions about what phase two looks like. Obviously, we've picked up this new property last year to the north, and we're going to be expanding the parking area, but we're in discussions about what that would look like. So we are working on the situation. Okay, I would love to pray with you this morning, and before I go into prayer, just a heads up that we have a team on the road right now on the way to Kentucky, and we want to be praying for them. Larry Brown left, led a team of workers. Um, there were floods and tornadoes last year in Kentucky. There was a lot of damage done, and they're working on one of the flood sites, and we want to pray for their safety as they travel down and as God brings them back. So let's join together in prayer about our study and about their travel. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to be together. We're grateful for what you're doing among us and how you continue to demonstrate your presence. We do pray for Larry and the crew as they head down to Kentucky, and, and we ask that you would give them mercy as they travel, that you would protect them physically. 
but also allow them to be not only a representation of this church, but a representation of your kingdom. We know, Father, that in many cases they work in the homes of individuals who are not yet in a relationship with you. So we pray that they would represent Christ well and that you would bring them home safely to their families. We also pray, Father, for ourselves as we prepare to look at what you've given us this morning in Genesis chapter 4. And we ask that you would give us insight and that that insight would come through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it wouldn't just be our fascination with details, but rather, Father, looking at the way that you would cause the Spirit to imprint this on us, that it would change our life. We ask for that in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Adam and Eve have a really big problem on their hands. They've been booted out of the garden, banished from God's presence. And they've always known life with God. But now, as a result of the rebellion, they've got a conscience. And because they have a conscience, they have an enormous problem. What do you do with your guilt? We're going to take just about eight minutes and refresh ourselves on where we left off at five, six weeks ago. If you weren't able to be here in March, just to be especially very, very helpful to you. To hit this question of what do you do with your guilt head on, we jump right back into Genesis 4. This is part of where we left off at. Verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So whatever Adam learned as a result of being banished from God's presence, they no longer had free food. Whatever he learned, he obviously passed it on to his sons because we find them all of a sudden being herdsmen and farmers, which really kind of puts a stamp on the reality that we're a really ingenious people. Our species can create things and come up with solutions. So Genesis 4 kind of puts a stamp on the fact that the humans immediately are demonstrating resourcefulness and they're putting their God-given talents to use. That's no surprise to us because our generation, our generation is able to extract the resources of creation in ways that generations before us would have never imagined. Yet with all of our innovations, we have not yet advanced the issue, the root problem of the human heart. There's no scientific remedy for the brokenness that we have among us. We still have tyrants. There's still individuals like Vladimir Putin who kill wantingly. And yet, personally, we still have failure. We still have sin in our life. Now, I know that believers understand that the things are the way they are because of a core problem. At the core, there's something that cannot be fixed with human solutions. And so the issue surfaces. If there's no scientific remedy, and if there's no human solution, what do you do with your personal failure? What do you do with your sin and sin that produces guilt? More importantly, what does God allow for? What did God allow for in case of Genesis 4 with Adam and Eve, and as you're going to see with Cain and Abel? What did they do to deal with their sin and their guilt? Go back into Genesis 4 with me in just a moment, but I, I need to look at Leviticus 17.11 in order to answer that question. 
Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by the reason of the life that makes atonement. We noted five weeks ago that there's this consistent principle throughout the Bible. As you're working through something like Genesis 4, you see the remnants of this stuff in Leviticus 17. God talking about a life for a life, an unblemished life in exchange for a blemished life, an unblemished life in exchange for blemished lives. So when we read Leviticus 17.11, a word comes up, this word kafar, a Hebrew word, and you'll see as you look at it that it, it means to cover over, to placate, something that God gave us to cancel out or to appease. Now, remember when you read Leviticus that God's speaking to Moses, and he's saying, Moses, this is something I've given you to deal with guilt, to deal with sin in your life. I've given this to you, but it's not new. It's not new to Moses. It goes back before the time of Abraham. It goes back before Job. It goes back before Noah. It goes all the way back to the time of the garden. And God says, I've given it to you because blood represents life and it atone, it alone can atone for life. So bear down on Leviticus 17.11. I have given it God himself. The one whom we studied through Genesis 1, through Genesis 2, through Genesis 3, he himself who created all things chose this knowing what it would lead to for Jesus. Because atonement is only possible through the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So let's jump back into Genesis 4. Watch how this plays out. Verse 2b, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And we got two baby boys, the first humans ever born on the planet. And suddenly we find that they're men and they're working the soil and they're tending the flocks. And I want to know, because I'm inquisitive, what were they like as teenagers? But it doesn't tell us. What, what we do understand is we learn that Cain's life started out with huge expectation. Because in verse 1 it said, read it again, she conceived and gave birth to Cain and she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Just hang with me on this. Every mom starts out life with her baby with huge expectation for her baby. In Eve's case, she's got higher than normal expectations that Cain is going to have great potential. Here's how I know that. I want to show you again how most English translations read. Look at it again. Genesis 4.1, and she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. You might remember from five weeks ago when I pointed this out, with the help of is an addition to the Bible. It's in italics. If you check your Bible later today when you get home, or maybe you have it right now, look at it, and you'll find it in italics or with brackets around it or with parentheses. The translators added that because they didn't know what to do with the original ancient Hebrew sentence structure. So the translators decided they were going to help Moses out to make sense of it in English. Here's the way the earliest Hebrew text, the original text, actually literally reads. I have gotten a man... Jehovah, Y-H-W-H, the unpronounceable name of God, so they would put in letters to represent his name. I have gotten a man, Jehovah. There's no with the help of there. So here's what happened. 
Prior to the English translations, the ancients literally read this early text as this. I have gotten a man, the Lord. But the ancient scribes, and I mean the ones preceding Jesus, before Jesus came on the planet, the ancient scribes didn't like what that implied, that a woman would give birth to God. Like, hello, clue phone should be ringing. That's exactly what it's supposed to be implying. So translators attempted to get around the obvious by adding in the concept through God because they were confused about the statement. And, and so they reworded that, which became in English with the help of. And it wasn't nefarious. It was just a, wait, this sentence structure doesn't make sense. Let's put this in there. Adam and Eve knew that a woman would give birth to the promised one and that that one would be the God-man. So Adam and Eve understand the word of God and they believe God's promise according to what Genesis 3 said. Let me refresh you on that. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, watch, and between your seed, Satan, and her seed, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman shall bruise you on the head. In other words, crush your head, Satan, and you're going to bruise him on the heel. So God, in this very early prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, saying, there's an event that's going to happen in which there will be one born of the seed of a woman, and that one will destroy Satan. So God said to them, that serpent, Satan, will ultimately be defeated by a God-man. And obviously, Eve thinks that Cain is the promised one. So with all that in mind, reword, reread her statement. Genesis 4.1, and the man knew his wife, Eve, his wife. She conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man, Jehovah. Now, if you were here in March, you're thinking, well, this sounds really familiar. I, th I think I remember that. Here's one more thing to trigger your mind. This is Arnold Fruchtenbaum's quote from that point. Her basic theology is correct. The coming Messiah, the seed of the woman, will be both God and man. Her mistake is in the application of that theology. Eve assumed that Cain, her firstborn son, was the promised God-man. The reality is when you come to Genesis 4, Adam and Eve are really, really, really looking for God's promise. They believe God's word. They trust God's word. And they want God's solution because they've been banished from the garden. So you have two sons and two parents living in the wilderness, banished from the garden, yet life with Cain starts out really hopeful. The parents have these high expectations that even if they did make a mistake, even if they did err in presuming on God's plan, they're clearly thinking God's thoughts and they're raising their sons to keep, them, keep God in their lives. So here's what we didn't explore last time. Verse 3, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord, the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. So Cain and Abel are both worshipers. We might say they're religious. How did they know to do that? How did they know to bring an offering? It was a truth of humanity. Both believers and unbelievers throughout history have been very religious. Every single culture. The issue is, what are they worshiping? 
You can go to the most remote parts of this planet and you'll find individuals worshiping. They might be worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars, the rivers, animals, gods of their own making, money. Now, this is not a rabbit trail. I would tell you if it was, so just hang with me for a second. I want you to hear this. I'm going to speculate that the two most vocal evangelists for trusting God who ever lived are right here in Genesis 4, Adam and Eve. I think the two most vocal voices for God, the two prototypes of creation over whom God pronounced, they're very good. There's no flaw in them. Remember we talked about they had very high intellectual capacity, that they had this relationship with God far beyond what we know, first-person audible conversations with God, high intellect yet, they fell. Who better understands what it is to be a target of Satan? Who better understands what it is to be lost? Adam and Eve have the very pinnacle of relationship with God on earth, yet they completely lost it all because of the poor choices and their rebellion. And we know that God forgave them. And we know that God gave them a future. And we know that God killed an animal on their behalf and, and took the hide and made them skin coverings according to what Scripture records. And it's kind of a picture of the sacrifice, yet they were still banished from the garden because of their consequences. Now, still not a rabbit trail, but stay with me. How many times growing up did your parents tell you about their early childhood? Like my mom did it constantly, telling me about walking to school in the wintertime Uphill both ways, right? And the snow was like six feet deep. Except in my mom's case, because she grew up by the Mackinac Bridge, it really was that way. It really was rough winter. So, like, how many times do you think Adam and Eve sat down with their sons and told them what garden life was like? How many times did they tell them what was lost by ignoring God? and being very, very honest with them. See, I can't imagine anyone better equipped to communicate life with God and life without God than the same two people who were thrown out of paradise. That no doubt, boys were told in regards to God, you must demonstrate honor of the highest regard. You must show respect in your worship. Now, the Bible is not yet a written document. And so Cain and Abel, they get their knowledge of God from their relationship with their parents and from nature, what they can see in natural revelation. So like any parents, mom and dad have influence, and yet we find these guys are grown, and they're making their own decisions. And it's safe to say, even though they don't know the family, even though they do know the family history and that, and that rebellion has consequences, it still doesn't take long for this deep-seated sin nature to surface. See, Cain inherited sin just like the rest of us. He was, he was born into it. So along comes Cain, and with him, he brought what he raised. We see this in verse 5. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. 
And make no mistake, living in the 21st century, this is God clearly saying, I do not accept you based on the way that you want to come to me, in the manner in which you want to come before me. In, in other words, God has standards as to who qualifies and who does not. And that's really hard to hear when you're living in our generation, that it's not on our terms. It's on His terms. So God's standard is the privilege of being acceptable in His sight happens in a very specific way. For Cain, Cain's regard for God is seriously flawed. Because Adam and Eve's firstborn son is anything but godly in his actions toward God. I've, I've been in a, the walk of a Christ follower long enough since I was 14 years of age. I know this principle to be true. The, the revelation of your personal character, what is revealed about you, what is revealed about me, it shows up in how someone reveres God, especially and how they treat worship. And when you get into belief systems, personal character becomes very, very clear. And I'm not talking about how good someone does or doesn't sing. I'm talking about how you walk, how you talk, how you serve, the things that we do before God. It's a worshipful heart that serves well that walks well, that talks well, that gives well. Let me press this issue just a little bit. Why do the Scriptures indicate that God had no regard for Cain's offering? See that in verse 5. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Now, it's not recorded, but at some point, God must have commanded that they would bring an offering. Otherwise, how would they know to do it? And why would God bother to even have any, any regard for it? Why else would God even give attention to that? Now, this is not minimizing at all the grain offerings. The grain offerings, like what Cain brought, they were there to serve as a reminder that God is our provider and He brings us everything that we have. But those weren't instituted until the Levitical law, way back or way forward at the time of Moses. That's not where we're going this. This is, this is what I see as significant. He did not bring an animal sacrifice. I'm fairly confident that God would have instructed an animal sacrifice. What I do know for sure is they're very aware that God demands our best. But there's no statement as to the quality of what Cain brought. Yet the narrative does tell us about Abel's offering. Watch how this unfolds. Verse 4, Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. So his first is offered, his very best is offered in respect of the Lord. So Abel is actually called righteous in the New Testament. I don't know if you ever noticed that before. Hebrews chapter 11 is a good example of that. Hebrews 11:4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Well, who testified to that? Keep going. God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. You can't get a higher acclamation than God saying, that dude's righteous. 
He did it exactly the right way. So verse 5, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. So having regard means God accepted it. God had accepted two realities about Abel. He had regard for Abel and for his offering. His offering is actually the fattest of the firstlings, and it's the best of the best. So the emphasis is on the quality as well as the character of the individual, and there's a reason for that distinction. God always looks at the human heart, right, church? Okay, like five of you agree with me. God always looks at the heart, right? That's how he knows us from the inside. Our actions are a reflection of what's on the inside. And God's saying, here's a righteous man. So God has regard for Abel because his heart and his attitude and his faith is reflected in his action. But of Cain, of Cain, it doesn't say he brought the first and it doesn't say he brought the best. It just says he brought of the fruit of the ground. Now, I said it's significant that he didn't bring an animal sacrifice, meaning a blood sacrifice, and here's why. This is why I'm convinced that this is what's really going on. We talked a moment ago about the principle of a life for a life, an unblemished life for a blemished life, a life for a life, an unblemished life for a blemished life. We see this principle playing out here because there's already been a demonstration of the need for a substitutionary death way back in chapter 3 when the Lord God had to kill an animal to cover the man and the woman and make garments of skin for them. And I told you at the time, that was a picture of the substitutionary death to provide a covering for a sinner. So here's what I also know about Christians. Deep in the heart of every single believer... When we go before God, we have a very clear understanding. There's a realization that when we become before the Father, it is in Jesus' capacity. It's in His accomplishment. So the approach to God is an attitude of realizing we deserve death. Although we may not articulate that on a regular basis, and maybe sometimes we even forget until the communion table shows up in the front in church and we pick up the elements, we pick up the bread, and we pick up the cup. We're reminded in those moments, we deserve death, and he took death for us. So for an Old Testament saint in the sacrificial system, it was by recognizing that the offering, the sacrifice that they brought before God, that very sacrifice served as the symbol of a need for a greater sacrifice, that they needed that, one who could die in your place by which your sin can be covered. And therein is a huge reminder for church people. So I'm speaking to you whether you've been here a week or you've been here 50 years. You, you need to remember because this is exactly the same issue today. In our natural state, in other words, before you knew Jesus as your Savior, before you understood that you were a sinner in need of a Savior, in our natural state... Our natural pride hates the truth of a substitutionary death. We want to do anything but accept that. That's why Paul writes so much in Romans about this desire that we have to work for our salvation. 
because that's what we really resonate with. Like, I can do things. I'll make things right with God. I can do things while He'll like me then. But Scripture says you can't come before Him with works of righteousness that you've done. I'm going to quote Dr. Pink a couple times, but here's the first one. He said this back in 1930. He's an old dead theologian. And he said, the fallen human heart rebels against the idea of the impossibility of approaching God through a bloody sacrifice. See, what you did, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is you accepted Jesus' substitutionary death as payment for your sin. You came to a point in your life where you said, I give up. I cannot do this on my own. I am not good enough. There's so much sin, I could never make up for it. I need Jesus because there's nothing I can do on my own to restore the relationship to God. But in our natural state of mind, that's the last thing we want to admit to, that we're not good enough, especially when culture keeps telling us, you're good just the way you are. You're exactly where you need to be. You be your own you. And that's why this issue entirely, completely depends on the grace of God working through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I know you get that as a church person, but church people are mystified when non-church people don't get that. What that's really speaking to you of is the reality that the Holy Spirit illuminated your mind, and it appears that Cain didn't think that he needed a substitutionary death on his behalf, that he did not need to depict the reality that he's a sinner worthy of death who needed an innocent substitute to die in his place. See, the thing that you notice here in this conversation is there's no humility before God. There's only pride. There's no humility saying, I need this. So this really echoes of the self-righteousness in which you probably said it yourself and maybe you know individuals who said, yeah, I know about that Jesus thing. I'm good. I really don't need that in my life. I'm like, okay, I'm glad that's for you, but I'm out. That's kind of what you're hearing here this echo of self-righteousness. So watch Cain's reaction, verse 5. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. You ever had your blood pressure go so high when you're so mad that your skin actually changes color? You ever turn so red in your face? You're not going to out yourself, are you? I'm just staring at you, and I'm getting blank looks back. Okay, I know I'm not the only one. Blood pressure rises, we go red in the face. You do it when you blush, and we do it when we get angry. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, blood pressure goes up. Somebody says something that you don't like, blood pressure goes up. That's kind of what's being described here. Let me show you these two Hebrew words. Kara, it means to glow warm, to blaze up, and it's almost always used of jealousy, to wax hot. And the very next word that comes after it, when it says his countenance fell, it's this word, panim. You can tell when somebody's face turns, when their blood pressure goes up. If you're in a close relationship with someone, you've got a social circle, you've got people in your life that you know really well, you can tell when they're wearing a weight. You can also tell when they're angry by their face. Cain's facial expression fell. Because he's furious that his labor has gained him nothing. And there's this anger that he's not able to approach God on his own terms. So his blood pressure is boiling. 
That's what Scripture is describing here because of the rejection. And he's allowing himself to fill with rage, and he's contemplating his brother's success. Can you say sibling rivalry to a whole new level? Like, wipe that stupid grin off your face. I'm not saying that Abel was goading him. I'm saying that siblings know each other really, really well. And you've got an individual who's angry over the fact that he can't come before God and that his brother has been declared righteous. Notice very closely, this is especially telling that he's not angry with himself because there's no humility here. It's all about not getting his way. So had Cain's offering been in the right spirit, there'd be no anger over how God rejected it. Rather, it would be this. I'm so sorry. What, what did I do wrong? Correct me. I, I want to fix this. There's none of that going on here. There's no humility to learn God's will. So if Cain is the biblical prototype of a lost person, Now you get to see how God reaches out to someone who's lost, and you see mercy and grace all over this. Verse 6, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? Pause right there. The Lord God said to Cain, so this is the direct word of God, right from God's audible voice to Cain, Speaking to Cain in a one-on-one conversation. Now, perhaps Adam overhears this. Perhaps Abel overhears this. We don't know. But God is causing Cain to take a personal inventory and look inside. Cain, look at you. What is motivating this? Where is this coming from? And in this, God is demonstrating massive compassion. See, frankly, I'm surprised when I read this account that God doesn't incinerate him on the spot. Because he could, and he's done it with others. Why not here? He speaks to him with crystal clarity and gives him clear invitation to do the right thing. Cain, make the right choice. Do the right thing. Literally, God offering a sinner the opportunity to be delivered from his sin But this is what I was talking about earlier, about when a person comes in worship, what their character really reveals is who they are before God. Cain is being put on display here. The condition of his heart is clearly revealed by his anger. So even though his worship is destitute of genuineness, God is gracious with him when he says, this doesn't have to be this way. This story can have a different ending, Cain. This can play out different. Watch verse 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So very telling for our generation. If you do well, in other words, if you come to me in the right way, I will accept you. If you come before me in the way in which I've prescribed, but if you do not, if the way you try to come to me is wrong, sin is going to rip you apart. This really echoes of Jesus. You could probably finish the phrase. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, you know it, but by me. 
God's standard is very, very clear. There's a wrong way, there's a right way. You don't get to God except through Jesus. So Jesus would say, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one gets to the Father except by me. And so God goes a step further to Cain and he says, you don't come to me in the right way. Sin is crouching at the door and it is like a wild beast and it is ready to destroy you and rip you to shreds. So this image of a vivid, of a beast is very, very vivid for somebody living in the Middle East because a crouching lion is never gentle in its attack. A lion doesn't saunter up to something and begin licking it to see if it tastes good, right? The attack is always full on. It's always ready to shred. This summer, go to the zoo. Watch what a lion does at feeding time. It never takes its eye off the prey. And by the way, you're the prey. It's a good thing it's on the other side of the glass because it's always prowling. What does scripture call Satan? A roaring lion, wild beast. So God says, if you don't do what's right, sin is like a lion and it's waiting at the door and it's gonna pounce and it's going to destroy you. And you're gonna have to try and master that all your life instead of just coming before me in humility. So his self-righteous, God-defying, jealous, disobedient response is going to make him vulnerable to the deadly power of sin to consume. And God says, you're going to have to try and master that. I'll give you a heads up this time. Say amen if you agree with this. God is faithful. He's always faithful. And so therefore, God always speaks the truth in love. Because he calls us to do that. We talked about that last week. Speak the truth in love. We talked about that two weeks ago. Speak the truth in love. God always speaks the truth in love. And so he faithfully, and here's a word you don't hear very often. He faithfully and he gravely warns Cain. There's going to be a consequence, Cain, if you don't deal with this. There's a consequence if you refuse to come to before me in the right way. And if sin is not dealt with in the way that God specifies, it will destroy you. But you know the story, I bet. Cain refuses to comply with God's demand, and as a result, God's threat is carried out. You're not going to see this verse go up on the screen, but just hang with me. James 1.15, hear me read this to you. When lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin is completed it brings forth death. That's precisely what happens in this case, verse eight. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. The New Testament identifies Cain as being one who's associated with Satan, with the evil one himself. It comes from 1 John 3.12. Look with me at this. Cain was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And the New Testament comments further in the book of Jude about Cain. It actually says false teachers, they're going the same way as Cain. They're under the judgment of God. And you might be new to church, maybe you've been in church 50 years, and you've always wondered, why did he kill his brother, though? Why kill his brother over this? 
There's something very telling that repeats in the story, and it's the word and and the word also. It keeps occurring. I think it's demonstrating that Cain and Abel came together to make their offering. They're siblings, and Cain's offering is rejected, and Abel's offering is accepted. And it appears that Cain is reasoning that this would likely mean a change in the primogeniture, the role of the firstborn, that his younger brother would become his ruler, and therefore his anger is increasing, and his willingness to compete or complete a premeditated murder. This isn't going to work out well for me. I've been rejected. My secondborn has been accepted. My younger brother is righteous, and I'm not. And you see this throughout Scripture where God changes the roles for individuals based on how they come before him. So it appears that Cain intended to maintain his superior position at all costs. Here's the second and last quote from Dr. Pink, and we're just about ready to land this plane. He said this, Refusing to sacrifice according to God's requirements and fearing that Abel would now be his ruler, he decided that rather than submit to this, he would kill his brother. So now begins the God conversation. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Only one generation removed from the garden. And already you can see the depth of entrenched evil in a human heart. He's speaking with the God of creation. And he thinks he can lie right to God's face. And there's no contrition here. There's no confessing of sin. Rather, just this defiant denial. Am I my brother's keeper? I have no responsibility with him. Your question is irrelevant. And this is a pattern that you see in someone who will not acknowledge sin in their life. Because there's no humility, there's an attempt to hide the truth. And it's a bold face, blatant lie, and it's exactly what God said would happen. Sin was waiting for him, and it was crouching at the door, and it has pounced, and it has shredded him, and it's turned him into a murderer. So lying comes really easy. If you're going to murder, you can lie so easy, and you think you can lie before God. But his denial is absolutely useless. So God's response, verse 10, he said, what have you done The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The word killed in verse 8 is actually a very common word in the Old Testament that's used for premeditated murder. So if you're thinking this is an accident or this is maybe manslaughter, that's not what's going on here. This is premeditated murder. And the murder is done out of envy because there's this feeling of being inferior to Abel. And so his righteousness became intolerable to Cain. One more time. First John 3, Cain, who was of the evil one, slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil. Hanging around someone who is righteous can be very irritating to people who are not righteous. It can, it can gnaw at you. Apparently, it's gnawing at Abel at Cain, that his brother Abel is is righteous. So throughout history, this is the kind of thing that got Christians killed and Christians persecuted for, for these very reasons. 
Throughout the Bible, we find that every sin that is committed rises to God. It actually cries to God. So don't fool yourself into thinking that God doesn't know or doesn't care. Whatever that sin is, it cries out to God loudly, and God knows about it. So there's a consequence. Verse 11, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. So the very same ground that yielded crops for his offering opens up to receive his brother's blood. And this is like God saying, that ground by which you brought your offering before me, that same soil will cease to yield to you from now on. You're going to be a vagrant and a wanderer. What would you do at the point in which you are told your cherished profession that thing you love to do, that thing which made you think that you're good, that thing which you treasure, God says you're going to fail in that. And God's seeing to it that he's never again going to bring, be able to bring a grain offering. Sadly, Cain is more preoccupied with his punishment than the sin which caused it. Verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now, obviously, the population is growing on the planet. There must be brothers and sisters who are also adults by this point, nephews and nieces. We don't know how old they are when this happened. They might be 100 years old by this point. We'll get into that next week. But there's obviously other adults on the planet. My punishment is too great. Because they're going to hunt me down. That doesn't sound like repentance, does it, church? That's not repentance. That's attacking God's justice. That's saying, don't be that hard on me. Don't do this to me. So rather than repent, he's complaining about the unreasonableness of the burden that God has placed on him. And yet, even in that, God extends another branch of mercy to him. This is where it ends. Verse 15, so the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. What is that sign? I have absolutely no idea. Couldn't begin to tell you. Here's what I do know. I do know that God is making sure that even the worst sinner is given time. He's given more time so that maybe, maybe he would take the opportunity to repent. Instead, he goes out from the presence of the Lord. That's how it ends. Verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and sandaled, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The, the plane is on final approach, and it's just about landed, and I know you're tempted to grab your car keys. Don't grab your car keys. Hang with me for a second. The saddest part of this story is not just the murder of his brother. It's that there's no repentance. He chooses to live life apart from God. And here's why I don't want you to be distracted. In the bigger picture, 
the biggest picture. Jesus will not walk the planet for thousands of years after these events. But I want you to ask yourself this question. What if Cain had asked for forgiveness? Would God apply the sacrifice of Jesus to Cain and forgive him if he had repented? That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. If God can forgive the thief on the cross, he's forgiven murderers for thousands of years, he would forgive Cain. God would have applied the sacrifice of Jesus, and he would have ended his life looking forward to a time in which he could not see. That's where Hebrews 11 goes when it talks about all those saints of the faith, looking forward to a time that they could not see. That could have been Cain's ending to the story. He could have been making godly choices. So you knew hope. How do you deliberately help others to know the God who saved you? Well, it's your walk. It's, it's your day in and day out choices. The choices that we make every single week. So I'm here to ask this question. Are your choices glorifying to God and his standards? Or are your choices out of convenience to you and the way that you choose to live? Paul wrote about this in Romans 6, verse 12. He said, don't let those things overcome you. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. What he's talking about is walking in personal holiness because of this. We fail to remember what a powerful witness our life is to those who are in our social circle, to those who are in your family. Your life is a powerful witness. The question is, what kind of a witness is it? See, we all come into the world just like Cain. We're all born into sin, but we all have a choice. Even though sin is inherited and it is a beast, it can be defeated. But only as we come to God on his terms, only as we embrace his sacrifice for us, and that's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in case you're wondering, by the way. That's the term by which he says we have to come to him. With that unblemished life in exchange for a blemished life, because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. That's what God offered to Cain. Come to me according to my ways, not your ways. And the consequences will turn out differently. Are we good with that? Okay. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word would drive deep into our heart, that even as we do reach for our keys and we leave the building, we won't leave behind the imprint this has made on our life. That you would cause us to ponder in such a way that the decisions and the choices we will make, even in this very week, will reflect the humility of our heart as we walk before you. Not in rebellion, not seeking our own way, and certainly not chasing after sin but rather, God, looking for ways to glorify you and exalt you so that we would be actually a lighthouse to the people around us. God, I pray that you would use us in that way. In the magnificent name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, I ask that. And all God's people said, amen. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'll be down here in the front. Love to interact with you after the service. Otherwise, have a great week.